Hello and welcome to Voicing Relationships, a podcast produced by the House of Beautiful Business in collaboration with Salesforce, two companies dedicated to putting human beings at the center of business. To make this podcast, we spoke to authors, AI ethicists, social designers, and relationship facilitators, among others. And the way we did it was a little unusual. We collected perspectives through a series of asynchronous voice messages. We asked our guests questions about the power of honest, authentic conversations, or how machines might affect our relationships in the future. And while out walking their dog, or driving back to the city after a weekend away, they answered. What follows is a series of asynchronous conversations that go deep into relationships. I'm Megan Husted, the Editorial Director at House of Beautiful Business, and this is Episode 1 of Voicing Relationships the transformative power of meaningful conversations. conversation is not a given. Some say modern life makes good conversation harder than it used to be, or harder than it should be. So many of us feel strapped for time, and so that conversations that we are not obligated to have, whether as part of our jobs or non-negotiable relationships, like those with our colleagues, parents, or our children, we put off. We tell ourselves we'll get to them someday soon, hopefully soon, when we have more time for leisurely conversation. We're also increasingly having conversations online, not in person. So we can't punctuate a thought with a soft touch or refill someone's water glass, which is really just a nonverbal way of saying, I'm paying attention to you and I'm aware of your needs. So our conversations tend to get shallower and a bit harsher. I've also noticed that the group conversations I've been part of especially in corporate settings, on video calls. People are talking past each other more. But you can also tell other people are holding back and censoring themselves. And some of the most confident speakers, the ones who never seem shy about asserting themselves online or in person, they're as bold as ever, but now their replies to others often sound defensive, almost brittle. It seems patience is wearing thin everywhere. So I confess my discomfort with the state of my conversations today to Esther Blaskes Blanco. She's the founder of a company called Deep Business Connection and has a gift for facilitating interactions between people that feel authentic and powerful. I wanted to know, how does she think we could get back to conversations in which people feel free to say what they really think? We could think about like a 360 approach to this question, right? Like there is no just one formula. So if we start by the individual, I would say that there must be this willing to, or this compromise or self-compromise to give to you a, a nice part of me, 
you know. It's like meeting, like a romantic relationship. I would say perhaps the beginning is more obvious that you don't have those expectations. You are not willing to change or manipulate the other. You just want to offer the best part of yourself. Mm -hmm. If we put this into business, it could be one of the narratives, right? That when I join a meeting, my will is to offer to you this nice part of myself. And that's something that's, that could come either because you have that commitment, either because there is someone facilitating that helps you or opens the door for you to connect with this part of yourself. So I would say that's, that's one of the beginnings. Esther and I met over email in 2019 when she submitted an idea for an anthology I was curating, an essay on what she called deep feedback. She'd written it in Spanish, and working through an English translation together was a challenge, as what she was trying to put into words was ineffable, or simply put, really hard to put into words. We eventually met in person at a conference some months later, and there I finally saw one of her deep feedback sessions in action. I don't want to give too much away, but I can tell you that she had an extraordinary ability to look at people. I mean, really look at them. There is something extremely beautiful in looking at someone, the way that in my sessions we get to look at someone. And that is, and this is important, not wanting to change one iota, not one millimeter of the person in front of you. Uh, actually, therein lies much of the difficulty and beauty precisely because uh, it is something that seems impossible, right? Imagine this idea of, of having people in front of you and, and not willing to change anything of that person. But actually, this is possible. And it is possible when you, when you do something which is just looking at each other. And I repeat, just looking at each other. It, it means that you don't do anything else with your mind. It's a... You can call it, I don't know, mindfulness or, but, but if we look at this with a simple mind, it's just that you just do that, which is you look at the person in front of you. So you don't live mentally the moment you are leaving to go somewhere else or to solve something else. So in that moment, something happened, which is, it's um, like the invitation of a whisper that you decide to put near your ear, or, or, or not, when you decide to put that whisper in your ear and you listen to it, what you listen is, I am here for you. And voila, right? I am here for you. That's, that's all. So then you put yourself in a position of service. <laughs> I love this. I, I love this. I love this. I, it is so simple, right? It's just like, because I'm here for you. It's just, I love this, right? I, I love this moment because I'm here for you. And by doing this, you have my presence and I offer to you my presence. And this is all we are living right now. So this is precious just because of this. People who excel at meaningful conversations seem to have one thing in common. They come into those conversations with very high expectations. 
They don't approach them as information gathering exercises or discussions, quote unquote, but something more. I asked Aditi Karana, a novelist based in Los Angeles, how she went about meaningful conversation. Did she have an approach for getting beyond small talk? I think what's interesting about this time is that before the pandemic, I had little patience for small talk and now even less so. I think expression is an art. If you're talking to someone and you're not somehow moved or entertained or discovering something new about yourself or the world, that's a really lifeless exchange. We should be able to return to conversations, I think, in the archives of our memory and turn them over and look at them again as we assemble and reassemble our worldview. Conversation and expression in particular are, are really life-giving. And, and I think conversation should uncover layers of who we are again and again. When I heard this, I was reminded of something the American writer Joan Didion said about how she was able to conduct interviews in which people revealed so much of themselves. This was back in the 60s and 70s. She said it helped that she was short and wore lumpy sweaters most of the time, and so no one found her intimidating, even when she was asking fairly personal questions that some might see as intrusive. And if she could hold that quiet and assuming posture, the person she was talking to could relax and their defensive layers would come off. But is that really necessary? Do we all need to pick an approach as to how we can, in conversation, help people get to the place where they feel comfortable being vulnerable? I thought Aditi might agree and have some tips of her own, but she didn't. I love this question so much. You know, in my 20s and 30s, I worked in these fields where I literally had to coax information out of people. Um, I was a news producer, so I pre-interviewed every guest on every show I worked on. And then I was a qualitative researcher, and aside from designing studies where I carefully framed every question that I asked, I had all these strategies to get people to reveal things about themselves in the focus groups that I moderated. So I was good at this, and, and my bosses believed that I could get anyone to tell me anything. But more and more, I'm beginning to believe that conversation comes through us. Um, ideas, feelings, sentiments, they're revealed when the time is right. And our primary job, I think, is to align ourselves with time itself, which I know it sounds a lot harder than it is, but it actually means that we have to know what exactly we want revealed and we have to be prepared for it when it comes through. I don't know that we can make people reveal things if they're not ready. It's like rushing nature. You just can't do it. But you can set the scene a little by becoming receptive to that particular art of communication. Okay, set the scene a little. Lindsay Waking is an investigative strategist at Nonfiction Research, an organization that conducts, obviously, research, and in their case, specifically research into people's inner lives. They have talked to convicted bank robbers and how to reform retail banking. They have talked to sex workers for insights into Americans' experiences of intimacy. And Lindsay is also the author of America's Secret Playlists, a report on how people's music playlists reveal a hidden desire for emotional realism. I wondered how she thought of meaningful conversation and how to arrive at it. Interviewing people and spending so much of my days interviewing people has led me to believe that a meaningful conversation is about alchemy, that in any brilliant, soul-nourishing conversation, something in you should change form. It should transmute. 
You should not leave the same person that you went in, um, which I know is a very tall ask. <laughs> but otherwise, what are we doing? You know, are we just gonna are we just gonna collide? After I confessed my difficulties with group conversations lately, Lindsay introduced me to the term parallel monologues. Parallel monologues are what happen when we're not really engaged. When we're speaking to another person, and then when they speak to us, we mainly wait for our turn to speak again. Both participants are essentially in broadcast mode, very concerned with getting their message out, less concerned with a true conversational exchange. What really creates a conversation that has alchemy, where you walk out different people. I think the, the first thing, there's probably three things. Um, the first thing is that you have to drop those parallel monologues and really like get inside someone's inner experience um, and be willing to step inside and understand the world from their lens out, understand their internal logic kind of has this keen devotional interest in in your thoughts and, and someone having that keen devotional interest in your thoughts it can be such a healing experience because I think it's so so rare um the second thing I think maybe has to do with um being able to drop the notions of there being a wrong or a right way to see the world, to experience the world. Um, there's a quote by the poet Rumi that I've always loved that says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field and I will meet you there. And that field, I think, is the place that we're all trying to get to, that place where the normal rules, the performing, the bullshit, the ass covering, it doesn't exist. Um, it's just two people talking. And I think in order to get to that field, you have to be willing to drop your notions of good and bad, of acceptable and unacceptable, of what's okay to say and what's not okay to say, um, and accept what comes. And and the last one that I can think of is, and this might be a little bit odd, but to like welcome emotions in. I, I think there's a quote from the book, The Alchemist, that uh, I'm gonna mess this up, but it was basically like when, um, where the tears are, the heart is, that whenever you're able to have that emotional moment, you know, you know, that's where your heart really is. And, and I think conversations that let in real emotion are very rare. It all comes down to reciprocity, doesn't it? And not in the, we each take turns talking sense we talked about earlier. But in a mutual willingness to be influenced and moved by the other person, to speak from a place of honesty and authenticity that we can get to if we just give each other time and listen. That's a lot to ask, or is it? Can we shift the conditions of our life, be it our work habits or how we spend our off hours, so that this reciprocity is more likely to emerge? 
Fred Dust is the author of Making Conversation, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication. He's also an expert on design methodology and social innovation, and he works with organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation and the Einhorn Collaborative. Creating dialogue around big pressing challenges is essentially his job. And his first thought, he admitted in response to my question about meaningful conversations and imagination, was perhaps off topic. But it was the first thing that came to his mind. When we first bought our farm upstate, we didn't have internet. And in fact, the whole community has very poor cell coverage. And so we thought, well, how about if we have a house without internet? And how nice might that be? And as it turned out, when people would come, guests would come to stay for the weekend, rather than kind of experiencing the bliss of having no internet, their first response was anger with us. I mean, literally angry. How could we possibly not have internet? But then something kind of interesting happened over the time that we that they were there, which is that without internet and without access to the information, the endless information that's in our phone, we actually are in a, situ- we're in a situation where when we'd be at dinner and we couldn't remember what the plot of a movie was or what the name of an actor was or what a, how a book ended or what a word meant or what kind of animal did what or what an insect that was, we couldn't Google it. So we had to imagine. We had to just make it up. And it was interesting because those conversations ended up being so much richer, so much more powerful, and to your point, so much more meaningful because they relied on kindling the human imagination. And often, as we would be driving back into the city on you know late Sunday afternoon or early Monday morning, you would start to Google some of the things that you've been kind of trying to figure out over the weekend, and they were entirely wrong, or we were entirely wrong, but we, it was a lot funnier than what was real. So um, that's just a little story around how sometimes not knowing the answer can lead to unlocking more and more powerful kind of imagina- imagination and imaginary thing and, and creative thinking. Not knowing the answer. That can be fun. It can also be scary. I've cried in the middle of interviews that I've been conducting. <laughs> um, but it's not just, you know, tears. I think it's also like anger or provocation or um, frustration, like letting those emotions and letting that charge in, I think is always going to change you and change the person you're with. Um, if you can do it in a way that has calmness and patience and humanity and um, and you you let those feelings really into the conversation. Um, I think that's that's how you have conversations that aren't just parallel monologues, but um, but hopefully change the person that you're talking to. That led me to wonder: Should conversations have a goal? Esther, when asked, said yes. But the goal might revolve around the calmness and patience and humility that Lindsay was talking about. In fact, the goal could be as simple as presence. So one of the ways or, 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 or a key thing to, to, to bring my presence is to put passion into what I'm doing. 
which is something like loving the moment, loving just this, because this is the only thing that is happening right now is that I'm speaking to you. So what about those negative emotions? What if the person you have to speak to is someone whom you just really, really, really don't wish to love or be the face of love for? What if this person pisses you off? What if secretly you wish to correct them in some way or improve them? Or, as happens to me, what if you're so bothered by the toxic dynamics in a group conversation that you feel your small contribution of loving presence, if you can muster it, doesn't really matter because a negative energy or pompous posturing is just too overwhelming, suffocates all loving intention. And what if that only pisses you off more? I used to have uh, conversations uh, like after a really bad meeting where you, where you see people not treating well other people and you participate and you try to, I don't know, put something good on the table or fix things or contribute somehow and it's worthless. And then you leave the meeting and then you come back home and then your mind is again in that meeting by like spreading fire through your mouth. Yeah. You're like, you know and at that moment it's like um i see myself something like uh have you seen kill bill in fact i haven't but i've seen the trailer and the poster image of a homicidal uma thurman in a yellow jumpsuit eyes ablaze sword drawn so i'm that woman <laughs> like i'm that woman with this samurai uh, right yeah, yeah yeah and uh i i am here i'm just here and I just pick up and I just like cut heads, you know, like the movie. And uh, right, and you think I, of all those things to say that you wish you had thought to say yes. in the moment, yeah. Exactly, exactly. I'm always eavesdropping and I tend to go through life as though I'm living inside a novel or a movie. And I know we all kind of do this to a degree, but for some of us, it's um you know, like to a pathological degree, I think, but the deeper that you delve into the pathology, I think when you're really there, that's also when you become a novelist. Um, in the Celtic tradition, there's this belief that there are multiple realms that sort of exist on top of our own, like a set of transparencies. You'll have to forgive the very 90s metaphor. And I sort of invoke this idea whenever I'm working on a new project, I bring friends into it. It becomes a game now we are all living inside the novel that I'm writing. And this might sound kind of narcissistic, but it actually gives me a sense of confidence in this ability, which I need because I'm often lacking in confidence, but the ability to believe that I can create this world or have an awareness of it and bring it into reality and bring other people into it. And it's fun and enlightening and engaging for the friends and family around me because we get to invent our own fictional world. And so we all pay attention to everything around us in a way that we wouldn't if we were just trudging through life, I guess. So conversation from that place is always a little bit more elevated, not because we're self-conscious, because we're living inside a novel, but because we start to sense sort of a more internal trajectory, not unlike the plot of a novel. And so we're all empowered to become authors of the experience that we're living. I asked Fred too, if we're looking to have a meaningful conversation, should we go into such a conversation with a goal in mind? Might that help focus our attention and intentions? I, I would sort of say that there's a yes and no onto that. So I think first and foremost, the thing that you should be looking to get out of a conversation is 
better and deeper understanding of the person you're in conversation with. I think, honestly, if you could go into all conversations with a sense of openness and curiosity, what you might discover about the people you're talking to um, could actually, I think, change the world. <laughs> I know that sounds quite simple, um, but I think it's true. Um, that said, there are conversations where goals are absolutely the case. So in business conversations and things like that, um, board conversations, conversations on social change, um, there is a goal in place embedded in the conversation. And and it's and it's useful to acknowledge that goal. Um, and sort of and and but one of the things that I ask people to do is kind of align very early if they're going to be getting having a conversation around a specific goal or an organization or a strategy is, are they committed to that organization? Are they committed to the conversation? Are they committed to each other? Um, and by um, just asking for that commitment and also kind of assuring them that if they're not, it's fine. They don't have to be in that conversation. Um, I think can actually really shift the way, the whole nature of the way we participate. I often find one of the things on, on boards is that there'll be somebody on, the bo on a board, uh, I sit on many and many I love that I love, and um, and you'll have this somebody who's always like, oh, I don't really believe in the, where this institution is going, but they need me to be like the naysayer. And I'm like, really? Do they really need you to be the naysayer? Is that something that they they specifically said, hey, yeah, can we really need a naysayer? Because I'm not so sure that's what we, what we always need. Um, so in a loose way, I'm sort of saying that where there's always a goal, which is to get to know people, um, and then there's, there, and sometimes there are quite explicitly goals. Um, but one of the things that I write about quite a bit is all the places where you don't have to have a goal. You don't have to, it's just like, it's like gossip and chit chat and late night secrets. Like those need to be not thought through overly and just kind of like, let, let be because they're kind of like magical truly magical moments in our lives. Let's hear once more from Esther. I wanted to know, finally, how she did it, how she could look at people the way she did for so long and to such great effect. This, this is something that I, I just wanted to share with you. And, um, and also, uh, it's interesting how your question uh, put me in this situation of of putting words to to my work to what I do and this is challenging uh, or difficult I don't know because in this digital world right now looks like you either write content all the time about your work or you don't exist and perhaps this is not true what I'm saying is not true but it's like a feeling that I have so to answer to your question you you have to train this. This is a training. It's like going to the gym, but with your spirit and with your mind. And uh, and it is no use reading about this in books or watching it on a on a YouTube video or or even or or even listen to this podcast right now. You have to live it with your. You have to live it really. Uh, this is the invitation. One of the invitations that we have in life it does, that we experience what we know, what we read, what we watch, and that we experience this with colleagues, with strangers, with with I don't know, with with people we love. So you can transit the experience, uh, and you you do it your way. I mean, don't do it the way that I'm saying, right? You find find your way. Uh, or 
you know, it, it is, it, there is not a way to do these things. You, 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 do, you do it the way you, you feel you want to do it. And then uh, when you leave it, actually, uh, you experience that it makes you happy. And, and I mean happy, like I mean the word, which is, for me, it's been scary for many years. Um, and now it's not, because uh, we, we deserve that. We deserve to be happy and to experience. Perhaps it's more precise to say that we deserve to experience happiness. So, uh, and when you experience this happiness, uh, you realize that you don't, you don't you don't have to pay for a Harvard seminar or, or on happiness to experience it or isolate yourself in a monastery diet time for ten days. You know what I mean? It is very simple because the experience only required you. And I say this, and I say this of course with my love and respect for Harvard and the monasteries, which which uh, which by the way I love, right? But you know you know that. What I mean is that it requires just yourself, your person. So we may think also that we also need the other person, right? And that is true. But in truth, uh, the other person is there for you to see yourself. And this is another voila thing, right? Not, not for you who is listening to this podcast uh, or, or to you, Megan. This is for me. This is for myself. Uh, what I say is, is for myself. This is crucial that, that that the other person is there for you to see yourself, and this means that when I see myself, that that I see myself when I look at you. And this is so precious. I see myself when I look at you. So if I want to see myself, it is necessary and urgent that I do it through you. Through another person, right, or, uh, or through any relationship, then you can see yourself by looking at the sky or looking at uh, a tree, or even you can see yourself in when you stand in line at the grocery store. And, the, and, this, is, and this is for real. I mean, uh, you never get bored anymore. If you experience this, believe me, you will never get bored anymore. And this is revolutionary, right? Because then everything is a relationship. Everything. What is my relationship with? I see myself in my relationship with you. I see myself in my relationship with my, with my colleagues, uh, with, with uh, the way that I eat. I see myself in the relationship with my work. Everything is an opportunity to see yourself. And the fact that I, that I, that I really see myself through my relationship with you moves me, uh, really, <laughs> uh, because uh, there is this chance, there is this uh, beautiful opportunity of life to know who we are. You don't want to die without having seen yourself, right? This is something you don't want to miss in life. So, so the wish here is that I'm willing to be my best self by being with you, because by being with you, I see myself. And actually, now that I think this could be something that we choose to do for the rest of our lives, one of the commitments, right? Imagine a company where people commit to be the best of themselves with the others when there is a conflict, for instance. 
And but but really, for real, it's not something you you hang on a wall and you say, in this company we do this and we are cool. No, I, I really mean that you put all your tools. Um, I don't know, agile coaches, coaches or or CEOs or the leadership team, everyone, all the people in the, in your company, you do the impossible. So everyone commit to be the best of themselves with the others when there is a conflict. No, because in this in those situations, your your ego and we all know this, right? Uh, when there is a conflict with someone, my ego wants to win. So I don't, I don't, I don't connect with with this, with my humanity in this conflict. I don't connect with the humanity inside of me, and I don't show you my humanity when there is a conflict, because there is this ego or this side of the mind, whatever you want to call the ego, uh, that wants uh, to win. So my commitment is that if winning means that the ego wins, then I choose to lose. Because I choose peace, that's all. Because I choose peace. This is my this is my choice. So I better see beauty when I'm looking at you. I better see the human being that you are instead of what separates us. And the invitation here is that uh, we train our conversations to see what unites us to each other, right? Uh, know what separates us. This is the training in conversations. I'm gonna see you, I commit myself to see what makes me connect with you.